Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Welcome to another episode of Body Justice. I'm super excited to talk with you guys today. I have an amazing interview with Dr. Judith Rabinor, who has years, decades of experience in working with eating disorders. She's a psychologist in Manhattan, and she has several books, and she's been in different media appearances, and she's just full of wisdom. She started treating eating disorders when eating disorders weren't even in the DSM yet, not all of them. Um, And so I'm so excited to pick her brain today and to talk about this very special topic of the mother wound and how we go about healing some of this and how this aids people in recovery. So a couple things before we get started, I do want to mention a trigger warning. Um, Some of the topics we discuss can be really triggering if you've experienced trauma with your mother. Um, Another kind of thing I want to mention is that this is not intended For those of you that have experienced severe physical or sexual abuse from your mother, this is more, think of it more as emotional abuse um, or neglect, which is super common. So I don't want you to think the things we talk about apply if you've experienced some of these more extreme forms of trauma. Um, That's going to require a whole different lens in terms of healing and would be completely out of the scope of this podcast. So just want to put that warning out there. Um, Not that this podcast wouldn't be helpful for you if you've experienced those things, but um, we are talking about how do we heal from um, some of these wounds. And I would say that we're focusing mostly on that neglect and emotional abuse. So just want to put that out there. I hope you find it helpful. And without further ado, let's get started. Judith, can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are um, and what you're passionate about? Well, um, yes, of course. Number one, I'm passionate about being a therapist. I think being a therapist is just one of the most interesting ways you can spend your life. I mean, when I got my PhD in psychology and opened a practice, I felt like I was getting paid for doing what I love doing anyway. Like at that time I had little kids and I loved sitting on the bench, talking to other people about the issues in their life. And now here's my job sitting in my office, talking to people about the problems in their life. So I love being a therapist and I also love to write. Mm -hmm. So I am a very lucky person. I've been able to combine these two passions of mine, being a therapist and writing. Yeah, that's so awesome. And what got you interested in working with eating disorders during your career? Uh, Honestly, the very first person that um, 
was referred to me after I got my PhD developed an eating disorder. And this was back in 1968, before eating disorders were very prevalent. And I had just gotten out of the PhD program. I knew zero. Mm -hmm. And the father came in to talk to me after I had met with his 15-year-old daughter. And he said, you know, I read something in the newspapers about, uh, what's it called, anorexia? Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, do you know about eating disorders? And at that moment, a light bulb went off in my head and I said, I really don't, but this is something I'm gonna look into. <laughs> Little did I know that I'd be looking into it for the rest of my professional life. Here it is now, 40 something years later, and I'm still dealing with eating disorders. And that was when eating disorders were just developing. I went to a place called the Center for the Study of Anorexia and that now it's called the Center for the Study of Anorexia and Bulimia. Mm -hmm. At the time, bulimia was not even in the DSM. No one even really knew that bulimia was a separate and very, very prevalent entity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's so wild to think of how much the field has changed since then, you know, like even binge eating disorder wasn't even in the DSM until 2013. Exactly, exactly. And it's so awesome to have you on the podcast because this podcast is all about eating disorder recovery. And, you know, I'm personally recovered and I've been working with eating disorders as a therapist myself for two years, but you've been doing this for a lot longer. So I'm just so excited to pick your brain. Good. Well, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. We're here to have a scintillating conversation, right? Yeah. So tell us about your book, um, Girl in the Red Boots. What inspired that? Well, The Girl in the Red Boots was inspired because I, um, I looked like I got along fine with my mother. I did. I want to make say this right off the bat. I did not have a monster mother. I was not locked in the closet. I had lots of gifts and privileges in my life, but I carried grudges because of some of the things that had gone on in my life, which I wrote about extensively, and I couldn't free myself from them. And what really surprised me is that after she died, I missed her so much. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull all this together. I had been writing as just really a form of self-therapy for years, writing, one story after another. And as I sat down to write the book um, and tried pulling everything together, other stories emerged. And all of a sudden, I understood that I was writing a different book than the book I thought I was writing. Mm -hmm. Can I say a tiny bit more about that? Yeah. Well, I always recognized that my mother had done some wonderful things, that she really had a joie de vivre. So in the first chapter of the book, or if anybody even reads the first chapter on Amazon, mm -hmm. um, you learn that my mother told me I was going to a birthday party and instead I was going to the hospital to get my tonsils out. And I'm all dressed up in my party dress on the way to the hospital. And I have a terrible traumatic memory of being wrenched from her and wheeled down and the ether coming over my nose. Mm -hmm. And years later, when I went to a therapist and told the therapist about this, the therapist said, maybe you could speak to your mom about it. And I said to my mother, mom, why didn't you prepare me? But she's stuck to her guns. And she said, this is what the doctor told me. And look, you turned out fine, didn't you? Mm -hmm. And the truth is I did turn out pretty fine. 
Um, but I still carried this wound. And that's a message that I wanted to give to readers. And readers have really been writing to me saying, I never understood. I'm so angry at my mother, but I was actually a kind of, she was an okay mom. She didn't do anything awful. So in the first chapter, I write about this tonsil story. And I kind of describe my mother as a superficial woman who um, just never got into anything very deeply, but she did love me. And I tell another story, which is called The Girl in the Red Boots. And that is called The Red Boots Story. That story is that I wanted a pair of red boots and I nagged her and nagged her and she took me. And finally, um, we go to the store and I run out of the store with those red boots on splashing in puddles, having the time of my life. I wouldn't take them off when it was time to get to bed. And that next morning, she gets up and goes to look in my room. Where's Judy? Nowhere to be found. Where's Judy? She looks all over the house. And finally, she goes outside and there I am riding my red boots up and down the block, riding my red tricycle with only my red boots on. And she loved telling that story. And the point of her story was I was energetic. I had a zest for life. I was adventurous. And she would say until the time she died, until the time she got really ill before she died, my Judy always had a mind of her own. She was always a leader, always independent, always adventurous. And I guess to tell you the truth, this is the message of my book, that, that people are imperfect and mothers are imperfect. And that she actually did do this icky thing, drop me off at the hospital in my party dress when I thought I was going to a birthday party. And that was really not so wise. But she also gave me a zest for life. Mm -hmm. That optimism came with passing that down through you in like a different way, like being the leader of your life and just like everything she described to you. It's like when I was reading the book, it sounded like throughout the book, you were longing so much for her to just see you. And then towards right. the end, you realized she did see me. It was just maybe not like the way you had wanted every moment, but what mother can, right? Like what mother can. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think there's so many meta messages in my book. I mean, mothering is very glorified. You know, mothers are sometimes expected to be perfect and they're also blamed for everything. Mm -hmm. So whenever a child has a problem, the mom feels, what did I do wrong? However, when the child does well, the mom usually isn't walking around saying, look at my child, this is because of me. Mm -hmm. so mothers are, I, I, in the beginning of my career, wrote a number of papers about mother blaming, saying this is very damaging, that mm -hmm. mothers are blamed for everything. Um, and that was like the era of Freud and blaming mothers for everything, right? So that was probably pretty radical when you wrote those, those essays. Mothers should not be blamed that mothers have a tremendous responsibility, but one of the problems in mothering is that mothers transmit the culture to their children. And we, to get back to eating disorders, we live in a culture that where women are still rewarded for being beautiful, attractive, and thin. Mm -hmm. And the good mother wants her daughter to be valued 
Yeah, yeah. I see, I see that a lot today too, in my clinical work, you know, it's like so many of the dieting messages and thin ideal messages coming from the mother and the client is usually super angry for a long time. Right. But usually when they get further along in recovery, and this was my experience too, I was able to see like, okay, my mom was doing the best she could. It might not have been good for me, but living in this, you know, super weight obsessed world, they're really just doing what they can to protect us, you know? Um, Exactly. And so my mother, um, you know, did follow like the doctor's orders this was the doctor was was godlike and if he said this is what you can do and i know this is true because many other people have told me that they shared my experience mm-hmm. that is what happened you know 45 50 years ago doctors did recommend this yeah yeah, yeah we give way too much importance and power to doctors <laughs> they should be having psychologists and therapists making those kind of decisions well exactly exactly Yeah, but I loved how, you know, you were able to see throughout your journey of making peace with your mother that instead of blaming your mom, it's like, okay, what is my mom's responsibility and what's the culture's responsibility and why as women is the pressure on us to raise the perfect children? Why are we not looking at fathers? Why are we not looking at extended family? Exactly. Exactly. It's a lot of pressure on moms. Right. And I certainly learned that when I became a mom and I understood, and I even wrote about that in the book, that every decision a mom makes is not really, um, a mom is not only thinking about what's best for her child. I mean, there are two or three things. One is a mom is juggling a lot of different things. And so sometimes a child's needs are really not thought about. And that is just the way it is because mm-hmm. like people just do a lot of bad things. Yeah. People make lots of mistakes. They just, our judgment is very impaired and we can't blame somebody for a mistake that was made. And that's another thing that's so easy. I think we're, we know now from neuroscience that we're wired to remember the bad. Yes. Nine good things happen. One bad happens, but we inside have a primitive brain and our primitive brain says, our primitive brain is always scanning for danger. Yes. Wants to protect us. Wants to protect us. And if something bad happened, you're going to remember that more. Especially with an attachment figure, right? Like, because these are people we're supposed to be able to trust. And so those ones are going to stick out a lot more than you know, the random stranger you walk by on the street. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, finally, as I was writing the book and I thought, you know, I got divorced when my children were eight and 12 and I really couldn't have known what the ramifications of that would be. Mm-hmm. Divorce is very difficult for children. But when I got divorced, I was thinking about my children and I wound up having a wonderful relationship with my ex-husband. We co-parented together and I actually wrote a book about that too. Mm -hmm. And that book was called Befriending Your Ex After Mm -hmm. Divorce, Making Them Better for You, Your Kids, and Yes, Your Ex. But the divorce was painful. And the years that we got divorced, I was preoccupied with that divorce. I wasn't thinking about my children every minute. 
I was thinking about my life. I hadn't really taken into consideration that divorce completely upsets your whole universe. It disrupts your family. It disrupts your um, social life. It, all of the things. Um, and I wrote about that in the book too, that when I got older and I realized, you know, every single decision in my life was not based on my children, even though I love my children and I'm happy that they seem to both be well-functioning, you know, happy, loving, contributing members of society. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wasn't thinking about them every single minute. Right. We can't know the consequences of every move we make. No. And sometimes and we don't have the luxury to even evaluate that, right? Like there's, we, we're not always aware of how our decisions are going to affect other people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think this thing about holding on to grudges against the mom, this is, I'm getting tremendous number of letters from people who read the book and they're writing, I related to this because my mom really didn't do so many wrong things, but sometimes I hear what comes out of my mouth and people are writing this. I have letters from people as young as like 18, as old as in their seventies. Mm -hmm. I hear what comes out of my mouth or I remember that how I would speak so disparagingly and so critically, mm -hmm. and I ask myself, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I can relate so much to that. I have a memory of uh, when I was, I must've been early teens and my mom, we were going to the mall and I hated the shoes she was wearing. I just hated them. And I was so mean to her. I re just remember making her feel so bad for the shoes she was wearing. And I thought about this as I was reading your book. I'm like, what was that really about? It wasn't really the shoes. It was probably just pent up irritability that I didn't know how to name, right? Or resent. I agree. And, you know, I have another line that I love to say, behind every criticism lies a yearning. Mm -hmm. And what is it that you, you know, you really wanted? Yeah. And, and that's a whole distraction. So the daughter criticizes the mother and then the mother feels either angry and retaliates or pulls back and withdraws. And so the, the daughter of any age, 12, 18, 28, 38, gets nothing. Mm -hmm. Now she's sitting next to a cold fish mother or an angry mother. Yes. But what is it that the daughter actually wanted? And often we don't even know. Yeah. I mean, if you would have asked me then, I would have said, I don't know, right? But looking back, for sure, I wanted connection. We were going, my family was going through a divorce and, you know, things were changing really fast. And um, yeah, I think I was just so hungry for my mom to see me, you know, kind of like you mentioned in the book. And her response was more like withdraw. I think she was probably really hurt. Like, why is my daughter attacking? What's my this about? Here I am with my credit card and my chauffeur's hat, taking my teenage daughter to the mall. Yeah. And she's complaining about my shoes. Go fly. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, I know. So we push away. Sometimes we push people away when what we really want is closeness. Yeah. And, you know, what we know as therapists is that that dynamic, if it gets started in the parent-child relationship, it often continues into all other relationships. And so what we want 
is to be connected. And instead, what we do is we create distance. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like that protection wall comes up. Like, I don't know if I can trust you. So I'm going to put up this wall and this is going to give me some illusion of safety. Yeah. And then we create a situation where the relationship is all about anger and mistrust and resentment mm -hmm. and being spiteful. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's all ringing so true. So is this something that you see it saw in your clinical work a lot? Like, because you talk about in the book how you work a lot with the client, the daughter and the mom. What were some of those common mother wounds that you saw coming up in the eating disorder development? Well, you know, very often the mother, uh, as I want to really emphasize, parenting is the biggest challenge. Why we don't learn how to be good parents when we go to school instead of learning about a lot of things that are not going to be useful to us at all. But I mean, no parent really gets it right. Yeah. all the time. And I always think this, parent, every family is the same story, ascending children and descending parents. Mm -hmm. And what that means is in the beginning, the parent does all the work, the parent takes care of the infant, children want independence, as you know, as, as they grow up and should get independence. Some children feel that they get too much independence that they're like abandoned. Mm -hmm. Some parents don't know, well, what is the exact right thing to do? And a child can wind up feeling really abandoned. And the example that you gave, of, you know, a teenager is nasty to mom on the way to the mall. And what that teenager really wanted was connection, but now she's going to get nothing. In today's age, that mom will pull out her phone and be busy trying yeah. to comfort herself, right? True. So some moms appear to be neglectful and are in fact neglectful. Mm -hmm. Others feel it feels like they're too over-involved and over-controlling. Like mm -hmm. um, I remember recently, you know, one time recently, this mom is telling this daughter, they're telling me about a fight they had where she said, you're not, why weren't you wearing your boots? It was a rainy day. And the mother says, and the child says to her, mom, I'm going to college next year. I'm leaving for college in four months. I have to figure out when I'm going to wear my boots. You're not coming with me, mm -hmm. you know? And, but it's for some others, it's very hard to let go. So holding on and letting go is a whole process. And lots of people really don't talk about it. Parents don't talk to their children and ask them, you know, is this feeling okay? Because the child is so wanting independence mm -hmm. yeah. um, and some of the issues underneath really don't get addressed so common dynamics include child feeling over controlled child feeling neglected and certainly with eating disorders you know a neglected child can easily say to her, herself you're not going to pay attention to me i'm going to make you pay attention to me how mm -hmm. much weight do i have to lose 10 then you'll notice me. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes a child gets involved in eating disorders, uh, in an eating disorder, because honestly, they're starved for attention. And mm -hmm. so they're nibbling or binging or grazing or sneaking candy. 
-hmm. And what they're really wanting is love. What they're really wanting is attention. What they're really wanting is affection. Mm -hmm. So all of this can get unraveled. Like, you know, in a therapist's office, when somebody else intervenes and says, um, well, what do you think was going on when you came home from school and you went, you got that bag of chocolate kisses and you brought them up in your room and you sat there eating, eating, eating. And if the therapist can slow down the process and say, so close your eyes and think about how you felt. At what point did your stomach start hurting? And we, what comes out usually in a session is the child zoomed, zoomed out. Yeah. Connected from themselves because they were in this phase of denial and distracting themselves from what they really needed because they were so sure they weren't going to get it. Mm -hmm. You've seen this too, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. And the those are the two, I think, themes I see the most too, is the neglect, emotionally neglectful mother. Um, and, and again, like it's so tricky because we can say neglect, right? But as we are discussing, it's impossible for a mother to be attuned to their child 24 seven. And there's other circumstances that get in the way that maybe the mom doesn't actually want to be neglectful, but there's these, like, for example, my mom's a single mom, you know, and um, she couldn't be there every moment. And I of course wanted that, but in her mind, she was doing everything to keep our family together. She was so scared of losing me and my brother just because the courts, you know, favor the parent with more income. So, there was all that. And then I also see a lot in my work too, is the critical mother, you know, and you talk about that in your book too, about how what's really happening is this critical mom is trying so hard to protect their daughter um, from whatever maybe the mom has experienced or from feeling shame. Um, and then we become hyper hypercritical on ourselves as kind of a response to that. So that's what we learned. And I, I agree. And so the for the mom, what I usually do, and this is usually fascinating for the daughter, is often I'll say to the mom, tell me about your mom. And so then the mom has to go back and think about how she was raised. And sometimes we find that she's imitating the way she was raised. And sometimes we find she's rebelled against the way she was raised, right? Yeah. It can be either. So I mean, I think the thing, even though there's so many schools of psychotherapy, mainly what psychotherapists do is create an atmosphere where people can be quiet and reflective and think about what really was going on when these problems developed, whether the problem is a divorce or whether the problem, what really was going on when your daughter developed in this eating disorder? Yes. And what did your daughter really need? Mm -hmm. And often what was really needed was better communication. Mm -hmm. right? Nourishment of some sort, right? And communication is nourishment. Yeah. You know, when you feel bad and somebody notices, step one, noticing, mm -hmm. and then they're able to ask about it. And then they're able to ask the right questions and listen. Mm -hmm. And I always say to people, listening is the first step of communication because too often parents want to talk. Mm -hmm. What the child feels is they're being preached at or they're being criticized. And so I'm sure you also, as a therapist, try to facilitate a good listening process. Mm -hmm. Both 
the child can tell the mom, this is how I was or am feeling. And the mom can listen. Yeah. Yes. And respond and really take it in. Yeah. And kind of building that, that empathy and validation towards each other. You know, I think it's bi-directional, but a hundred percent, like, I think kids really want to be heard and seen and validated. And I think as adults, we forget to slow down and do that. We just think, oh, kids are resilient. They'll be fine. And yeah, they probably will be fine. Right. But fine, maybe isn't, <laughs> that doesn't, uh, isn't necessarily enough. Fine isn't enough. Exactly. Fine isn't necessarily being listened to. Right. And Luke, I wanted to say one other thing, but it just slipped my mind. Um, about it, it bi-directionality. I like that concept. However, um, it's really the responsibility of the mom to be the better listener, right? Yeah. And then there's another thing that inside everybody, there are a lot of there are a lot of wounded children. You and I right now are having a conscious conversation, but there's a wounded you inside that could get activated, right? And there's I have now a six-year-old granddaughter. And I think of how she feels if she doesn't like the way, you know, something is going and she can have a terrible temper tantrum. And so can all of us, even as adults. Mm -hmm. And so I find that sometimes I have to really say to moms, I really want you to listen. I promise you, you're going to get your turn to talk. Mm -hmm. Your daughter really needs to get this out because she's been carrying it around for so long. Mm -hmm. And often mothers realize that they too have been carrying around wounds. Mm -hmm. They've been carrying around wounds for their childhood where nobody listened to them. And I have a chapter in my book called When the Wounded Child Becomes a Wounded Mother. Yeah. Yeah. And in a and sense, so, isn't that all of us? Like none of yeah. us are perfectly healed by the time we become mothers. Yeah, that could be the name of your book. When yeah. You <laughs> None of us are perfectly healed when we become mothers and we're, yeah, we're yeah. all going to make mistakes and how can we forgive ourselves mm -hmm. and forgive our mothers and actually becoming a mother is usually a good step on the journey of forgiving your own mother. Mm -hmm. Because even though most people as they become mothers are positive, they're going to do things differently and better mm -hmm. than their mother. And often they do do things differently. But sometimes there are issues that come with that as well. Can I speak about that for a minute? Yes, please. Well, I felt as I wrote about in my book that my mother was just sort of um, emotionally absent. Mm -hmm. That she was just very big on let's keep the ship sailing. Let's keep the ship sailing and let's make lemonade. Mm -hmm. um, and so I became a mother who at least I think that I became this mother who would say to my children, oh my goodness, this happened. How did you feel about that? This happened. How did you feel about that? This happened. And what was that like inside? And my kids eventually would say to me, mom, give it up. Save that for your patients. We're not your patients. You know, oh God, that's going to be me, Judy. <laughs> am, I, am I making you laugh? Yes. I'm just reflecting on how I already tell myself like, of course, I'm like, I'm not going to do things the way my mom did. And I'm going to be really attuned to my kids and really there for them. And I could see myself doing exactly what you're what you're saying. Exactly. I mean, and kids don't want to be your therapy patient. No. Right. Exactly. And so you get into this mode of 
I mean, I think that I became a therapist because I wanted, because I valued um, an attuned relationship. Yeah. And I value both parts of it. I'm valuing it right now, having this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. you know, I feel like we're really in sync about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And that's, it, that's valuable. And that's nourish, it's nourishing. Mm-hmm. It's really nourishing. And we're talking about deep things. And my mother like shied away from deep things. Yeah. My mother would tell me um, that her mother was perfect. And I would say, mom, how could your mother have been perfect? Weren't you a teenager? Weren't you ever fresh? Didn't you ever cut school? Didn't you ever talk back to your mother? And she'd say, I don't remember bad things. Mm -hmm. I don't remember bad things. That sounds like my grandmother. (laughs) Just like the unwillingness to go there. The unwillingness to go there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're living in a different era now where, you know, all the different Me Too movements have encouraged people to identify with others' pain. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm kind of a little off the track, but we all watched a policeman put his knee on the throat of somebody and we all had to sit and think about how horrible that was. And it evoked so much empathy and compassion that there were demonstrations all over the country. Right. Right. But this is a different world. Uh, you know, it, we now see things that people take videos on their phone. I mean, we didn't have these phones 20 years ago. No. And we didn't have widespread access to good parenting, right? We didn't have the research we have today. We didn't have Amazon at the drop of the hat to order a book on parenting. It's so People honestly had different ideas about uh, parenting. I grew up and there was a saying, it was called spare the rod and spoil the child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you should punish children and the amount of children who would get a whack on the behind. Now this is called child abuse. Yeah. Now this is called child abuse. But the amount of people who have sat in my office and told me that their father would come home from work and take off the belt. Mm-hmm. And they would know what was coming. Yeah, I, that's hard. I definitely got the belt growing up too. And it was terrifying as a child. And it didn't teach me anything except to hide things better so I don't get caught. So right. it's, yeah. And, and I think you also mentioned in the book how you came to a point where you realized like you were growing up at the time of, well, or you were an adult at the time of the feminist movement, right? Like some of right. the first waves of feminism. And yes. your mom didn't have that experience. She grew up in a time where women were supposed to deny their needs, deny their emotions. We were crazy for being emotional or... Um, so I, I imagine that her kind of impulse to make lemonade out of lemons was also rooted in this idea that she wasn't allowed to have needs. It was adaptive, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't write this in the book, but my mother used to tell me, this is when I was in my first marriage. She, uh, would say, why are you expecting more from your husband? Women do 90%, men 10. Mm-hmm. I'd say, where did you get that idea, mom? She'd say, that's just how the world is. Mm -hmm. And that is how her world was. And I wanted a different 
arrangement. And actually, I did get a different arrangement, but I would have to say the world has not completely transformed. It's maybe that, 30, 70 now, right? <laughs> yeah, right. There's been improvement. But I mean, what did we learn from the pandemic? The, yeah. the parent who had the higher paying job did the job and the other parent was home with the children, schooling them. I mean, and 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 so many women had to leave the job market in order to take care of their kids because their husband had higher paying jobs. Mm -hmm. And so, but my mother, I wrote in the book, my mother, um, my mother was born in 1918. And that was one year before the women, before women got the right to vote. Wow. And in the book I wrote, that one statement explains so much more about my mother's life than I could ever understand. The idea of women not having the right to vote. Yeah. But, but the idea that women didn't have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, recently I was interviewed and I remembered in my first marriage, my ex-husband was in law school and I was a teacher and my credit card was in the name Mrs. Arnold Rabinor. Because mm. women could not get credit cards in their own name. Right. You put a credit card in the name of your husband. Yeah, that's insane. Women had no had so much less financial independence than they do now. Right. And the messaging was just like your identity isn't as important. You're second best. Right. And you it was true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, mean, even today, like. I know so many women, you know, peers of mine and just, yeah, that we have the higher paying jobs in our relationships and we're still doing more. <laughs> it's like, when is it going to get more balanced? Well, I went to a, um, to a funeral recently and somebody described the woman who had died saying my mother hated feminism because she said, now women have to do even more. They yeah. have to run the home raise the kids and go to work mm -hmm. yes that's what's wrong with feminism that's what <laughs> sometimes I joke about that too to my husband I'm like can't we just go back I mean I don't need to do all this job stuff right but exactly right and hustle all this hustling hustle it's hard um you have the you talk about in the book the mother-daughter retreats that you would do in your early career Mm -hmm. And you had this lovely kind of like meditation to ground people in. I was wondering, could we do that today? Because I thought that was so powerful just reading it. Sure. So the meditation that I love the most is this. Okay. So if anybody's listening, don't close your eyes. Okay. Don't, um, close this, them. don't close your eyes. Just imagine that you're searching through an, an old photo album or a box of pictures and you're looking for a picture of your mother that has something important to say to you. Allow yourself to scan the photos. Find a photo that really speaks to you and notice your mother's expression. Notice how she's standing in the photo. What does your mother's expression tell you about the woman who raised you? Mm -hmm. What does how she stands tells you, tell you about how she felt about herself, her body, her life. Mm -hmm. Your mother is the most important woman you will ever know. Your mother welcomed you to womanhood. Mm -hmm. 
And then in a retreat, I would ask people, so take 15 minutes and see the picture that came to your mind and just write whatever comes to your mind, go. Just mm -hmm. write what comes to your mind. Yeah. And people usually are surprised at all that comes to their mind. And often I've had responses that have ranged. One person that I remember saying, my mother didn't really welcome me to womanhood. She told me that being a woman was a second-class citizen. Yeah. Yeah, that's so rich. I, yeah. When you were giving that meditation just now, I have a picture in mind that always stood out to me. And the words I would describe my mom are scared, naive, and very loving like all three of those things. And she was very loving, but she also was, yeah, she's had her own traumas, right? And life story. And yeah, I think it elicits like some compassion. Like we have all these resents and we have all these grudges, but also there's this deep compassion because they are our moms at the end of the day. And that was very evident in your book that when your mom was on her final days, her final months. Oh my goodness, right you finally realized, oh my gosh, like she's not even looking at me the same. Before I had this wound of like, does she really see me? And then it was like, you suddenly realized when her face couldn't light up anymore. Right. That she had been seeing you all along. She had been seeing me. She'd been seeing me through her lens. Yeah. And we all see the world through our own lens. Yes. And a child wants a lot of validation and they want to feel seen who they are but we all see people just like I mean anybody out there who's married knows that we meet somebody we have a, a vision kind of like a fantasy of who that mm -hmm. person is then we get married and we find out the nuances mm -hmm. right that some of what we saw was a hundred percent true mm -hmm. but there were other aspects right because yes. we're all more complicated we're all multi-dimensional right absolutely um you know, another common theme I see in my work with clients is like the child develops an eating disorder. Parents know something isn't right, but they don't intervene. And maybe it takes them years until the child is really, really ill. I imagine that there's a lot of fear for the parent that kind of like paralyzes them. Well, there are a couple of things I want to say. One is we're living in such a crazy culture that when somebody loses weight, the reaction is usually, wow, how yeah. did you do that? Aren't you fabulous? And someone has to lose a lot of weight before somebody thinks, oh my goodness, there could be something wrong. Yeah. Um, so first of all, there is definitely this cultural component. And then there's denial. I mean, the parents don't want to think there's something wrong with the children because there is so much parent blaming. And so we want to think, well, that's kind of normal, isn't it? Like all kids cut school. So yeah, kids sometimes cut school, but somebody who cuts school too much is going to be in really big trouble, right? Mm -hmm. So I think those are two things to think about. One is denial. Yeah. And there's a beautiful poem by, I think it's R.D. Langs, and it's called Just Notice. And it says, goes like this, because the range of what we well, anyway, it says the range of what we see is limited by what we can notice. And we don't allow ourselves to notice what we don't want to notice. Mm. 
Yeah. And we often don't want to notice problems because we don't know how we're going to ever fix them. That's so true. Yeah. And I think now it's having me reflect, you know, I work with a lot of parents now and it makes me reflect on like my own experience. What were my parents thinking when I was struggling? And so I've went back and I've asked my mom and dad, I've asked my mom, what was going through your mind? And she would say that she was really scared, but she was so scared. She didn't want to make me worse by saying something. And she said, you were so angry. There was nothing I could have said. And in my mind now, I'm like, I was the child. I needed you to protect me, even if I was angry. But I'm wondering if in her heart, she felt like that anger would grow us apart. Like I would just push and push and push her away. I don't know, well, but. I think you're right that, that uh, uh, first of all, I don't know you, but you know, many people when they develop an eating disorder, they don't want to think there's anything wrong. I mean, the, the amount of denial is giant. Oh, yeah. So what's really bothering you is that your parents are divorced. So you stop eating, you know, and you lose a lot of weight. You don't want to even be pushed to think what was that eating disorder really about? Mm -hmm. So if somebody asks you questions like that, it's like you draw a blank. And if it's your mother, you draw a bigger blank. Yes. And an angry blank. <laughs> and an angry blank. And then the mother is afraid that if she asks too many questions, you'll eat even less. You'll punish her. Yeah, totally. And I asked my dad years later, what was going on for you? And he said, well, I just hoped you get better. I just hoped. And I'm like, like, oh. Yeah, the denial that I guess serves a protective mechanism, it really hurts the, the child. I, mean, I, I don't know them, but there may have also been, a lot of people don't have a lot of confidence in psychotherapy, but you became oh, a therapist. So, but you know, you may have grown up in a culture where psychotherapy wasn't thought of as, wasn't valued the oh, way, yeah. yeah. Totally. When I told my dad I was training, doing my master's program, he told me, well, why don't you just join the Peace Corps and find a husband? And I was like, oh gosh. But thankfully he really uh, respects it now. But, you know, it was definitely not something that I grew up thinking was a positive thing. Right. Yeah. Many people are afraid of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, now that you're a therapist, like people are always saying, oh, you're a therapist. Oh, I hope you don't start analyzing me right now as yeah. if I'm going to be able to analyze them just because I'm at a party with them, you know. Right. Or like that we want to be analyzing all the time. Like, right. That we want to be working. I mean, if you're if you're an electrician, do I think you're going to come to my house and fix all the plugs that need fixing? No. Right. <laughs> so, Judy, one really big last question for you. We've talked a lot about the resent and the grudges that build up over time. And we've talked about through both lenses, the mom and the child. Um, how do we finally let go of the resents and the grudges? Even if like in your book, you talk about, I do all the talking, I went to therapy, I'm still so resentful. What do we do? Well, I think the, the final step in growth is actually recognizing that in the end, we have to mother ourselves. Mm -hmm. that in the end we have to mother ourselves and that's a very hard nut to yes. swallow um and so reaching out and instead of being angry thinking about what do I need from my mother now like now that I'm no longer 
15 and she's 40, but now I'm 30 and she's 60. What do I need? Um, and so inviting her into a new relationship, recognizing that you can have a new relationship and there is no point in hanging on to these old grudges. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what we really know is that the more bad stories you hang on to, the worse you feel about yourself. And to feel that you were a neglected child or an abused child, even though neither you nor I were the victim of physical abuse, Mm -hmm. but to feel you were abused or neglected makes you just feel like a victim, but to feel like you're a survivor and Mm -hmm. to feel like, you know, it is kind of interesting that now I'm a therapist and I probably never would have been a therapist if I didn't develop an eating disorder and have such a good experience. Mm-hmm. And this is the silver lining in the whole thing. I that agree. I, I am a survivor and I feel the same. I wrote that in the book that I became a therapist because I wanted to create affirming, validating, empathic relationships. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've been very lucky. I have picked a career that has given me a lot of joy mm-hmm. that's um, wonderful and I I feel that in talking to you too yeah oh yeah I agree and I think now it's been you know so many years since my eating disorder uh, recovery and I'm able to see that eating disorder was a gateway it was a gift um I tell this to my clients and they're like what are you talking about like it, you don't see it now, but there's a reason you're going through this. And I know it doesn't feel fair, but seven years after being recovered for me, I'm able to see it as a gift. You know, like it enabled me to be so deeply attuned to people. It, oh, so many things. Um, and now I get to help others heal from their eating disorders. So there was a reason, there was a purpose, and not everyone's going to become a therapist out of their struggles, but I think it just unravels a layer of healing that we need. And becoming attuned to yourself is is fabulous. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that was the, so that's the big takeaway, I think, um, is learning how to mother ourselves. And that's something my therapist talked to me so much about in recovery. And after I had recovered, I had asked her, Dr. McLevoy, why was it so scary for me to recover? Why was it so long and hard for me? And she said, and I always like welcomed her insights. Um, I loved her psychoanalysis. And she told me, well, one of the things I think was you were um, really angry that you had to respect, accept the responsibility to be your own inner mother. You wanted your mom to do that job so bad. And you just, you were angry and you were fighting it and you didn't want to take that responsibility. And I was like, when she told me that, I was like, what, where did you get that from? But I've been sitting with it for a couple of years now. And I'm like, yeah, she was right. (laughs) I was so angry and it's hard to become your own inner mother when you didn't get maybe everything you needed growing up. And it's hard to really accept that most people didn't really get everything. Very few people get everything. Right. So, I mean, treasuring what you did get yes. is, it's, it's just like looking at the glass half empty, half full. Some people don't like it when I talk about, um, you know, redefining ourselves as survivors rather than as victims, mm-hmm. because really there are people that really are victims, you know, and they shouldn't be told you can't, 
you know, you can be victimized. Right. But I think understanding your own resources and your own strengths is what helps us become stronger, better human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe there's room to be both, you know, maybe we can say, yeah, I have been a victim of this and I survived and I'm growing and healing. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I learned is, I mean, healing is not a sprint. It's a marathon, mm -hmm. a marathon, very slow one, <laughs> a slow one, a slow one. Right. And we all have fantasies about other people being, you know, perfect. Those were quotation marks. And um, it's always surprising to me when people who I think look like they have everything together, I find out they don't. Mm -hmm. Right? Totally. That, that's another joy of being a therapist because people yeah. come to your office and they look like they have everything together and they don't. And none of us do. And we live in a culture that emphasizes, you know, perfect this, perfect that, perfect body, perfect life. Happiness. A lot of people are talking about social media being so idiotic that everybody's, oh, we're having such a great time. We're here at this barbecue. Meanwhile, the next day, the couple gets divorced. Totally. And there's actually research that shows those couples that post all the pictures of their happy family are actually usually the ones struggling more. Um, but yeah, I think that is so interesting. And yeah, we are raised to pretend like almost like, yeah, we have to pretend that we're always happy. And I think that people with eating disorders tend to be highly sensitive. And so we can pick up on that nuance of, wait, I'm exposed to be happy, but I'm not. What's wrong with me? And it doesn't feel safe then to feel our feelings. And we take that out on our bodies. Exactly. And I think it's also important to emphasize that losing weight looks like you have your life under control because that's what everybody wants to do. Right. When you get stuck in an airport. What is everybody talking about? What diet are they on? You know? Yep. It looks like you have everything under control. It's like you've shrunk your world into this one little thing. I can lose five pounds. I can lose two pounds. I can lose another pound. Right. But then it's looking at what's really important. Exactly. And it's not really about the weight. Like we're all seeking happiness and safety and security. And I think a lot of that healing comes when we can just accept the fact that like no one is happy 100% of the time. That is impossible. And it's okay to not be okay. Right. It's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to know that the other side of being not okay, when things go down, there's only one way for them to go. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something I always tell my clients too, is like, because again, there's, a, I think a tendency too with eating disorders, like the perfectionism and the comparison. And there's always that, why is everyone else okay, but not me? And I always tell them, well, I can tell you one thing I've learned of being a therapist is everyone's got something. You can look like you're doing fine. I might look like I'm doing fine, but of course I have things happening, right? That and not if you ever invite me back, we'll have another conversation about the anonymity of the therapist. Why therapists are not supposed to let people know that they too have struggled. Yes. That they too have struggled, that life is not a piece of cake. And I think that is complete bullshit. I think we should be able to tell our clients that we're not perfect either. That's well, that, that was another reason I wanted to write this book. I wanted to say, hey, you know, a therapist is not like a magician or mm -hmm. an idealized. There's I no, I, right, exactly. Right. Therapists have problems too. And problems actually help us grow strong muscles. Yeah, totally. 
Well, Judy, it's been such a pleasure. I definitely want to have you back on here. I feel like we could talk for hours. We could, we could. So invite me back and I'll come back and we'll talk about something else. Absolutely. And before you go, where can readers find you in your book? Well, I have a website. It's Dr. Judith. It, my website is my name. Okay. Judith Ruske Ravenor, PhD.com. And they can put in the name of the book, um, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. You can find the book on Amazon or any independent bookstore. And if you just put The Girl in the Red Boots in the browser, you're going to wind up with a pair of red boots on Amazon. So don't do that. <laughs> it has to be The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. Perfect. Well, everyone go find her book and thank you, Judy. We'll have you back here soon. It was wonderful to be on, Allison. Great talking. Awesome. Really thank, thank you, Judy. You. Bye. Bye.